Welcome uh, to you all and those of you at home watching as well. It's a delight to be gathered together this morning, worshiping our Lord. That is our hope. The blessed appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our great and blessed hope. How we look forward to the day when He comes back with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And we are caught up in the air to meet, meet our Lord Jesus there. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the Scripture says we we changed this body of sin and death that Paul complained about. And if you're like me, we, I complain about pretty often. It will be done away with. We'll have new bodies. We'll be like Him, for we'll see Him as He is, the Scripture says, and we will be with Him forevermore. Isn't that stuff worth clapping and singing and shouting about? So, Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2. And uh, before we come into the Word, I'd like to take just a moment and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful that we have a sure and blessed hope. Our Lord Jesus is returning in power and great glory and There is just a wonderful future ahead for us. It won't be a wonderful future for those who don't know Christ. Which is why we need to take every advantage of the time that we have to be ambassadors for Christ. It is exactly why Peter tells us that you have delayed in the return of Christ. We sometimes wonder, why hasn't He come yet? The answer is because He's giving more time for one more person to come to the knowledge of Jesus, to find salvation, forgiveness, new life, eternal life in our Lord Jesus. So, Father, we we are grateful for that wonderful promise, though, that we have of His coming soon. In the meantime, as we seek to live in these days before then, how we need to learn how to live, how we need to be encouraged how to live, As we come to this passage here in Jeremiah this morning, I pray that you would speak to us through it. May you speak the words that we need to hear. May our hearts be receptive. May our ears be attentive. And Lord, may you speak and may we be changed. We might bring honor and glory to you. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves and we commit this time to the purpose that you have for us in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is the greatest crime? It's the greatest crime in the world. Unfortunately, there are no, there's no shortage of candidates for that. We live in a world where a child is shot and killed in a car riding on the way to kindergarten. Surely that's a horrible crime, but would a greater crime be the murderers who target and kill scores of people in a workplace or in a school or in a shopping center or in a church? Or is the greatest crime the pure evil of serial killers who kidnap and torture and kill innocent people solely, usually scores of them over decades, solely for their pleasure? Or is the greatest evil government-sanctioned 
genocide like the Holocaust back during World War II or the genocide in Cambodia back in the 70s or in Rwanda in the 90s? Or is the most grievous, the greatest crime, the betrayal of a parent toward their own little child, a parent who kills their child, murders their their children? How do you rate what's the worst crime, the greatest crime? Do you do it by numbers of victims or do you go by the, the amount and severity of pain they inflict on their, on their victims and suffering that their victims had to endure? Or do you measure it by the amount of cruelty and, and brutality and betrayal by those who committed the crime? Or do you measure the greatest crime by the innocence of the victim? Or do you measure it by the value of the victim? We probably would all come up, if I asked you to write down the greatest crime, you'd probably all come up with different ones, and, and maybe you'd have a list, but all our lists would be different. We could give our reasons why we think this is worse than that, and, that, and that's the way we think. But this morning, as we come here to this passage in Jeremiah chapter 2, God is going to expose a shocking crime in the land of Judah, the land of His people. It's a crime that probably wouldn't make most of our lists as we draw up the list of greatest crimes. So, I hope you got your Bibles open to Jeremiah chapter 2. We're going to be reading a lot of verses there this morning. And I think you'll want to have it there before you. This message here in Jeremiah chapter 2 comes in the early the early days, the early years of Jeremiah's ministry. The messages here from Jeremiah in, in this book are not all chronological, but I do think that this is the first one recorded here, and it likely is one of the first, if not the first, public message that the prophet Jeremiah brought from God to the people. On the throne, you may recall from last week, the king in Judah at this time is Josiah, who is a good and a godly king. He is leading some reforms because in the over 50 years before him, under the rule of his grandfather Manasseh and under the rule, short rule of his father, the, they were wicked, evil men and the, the nation was just in the worst degradation imaginable. And Josiah became king at eight years old at age 16 he began to seek the Lord with all of his heart and he began to institute reforms in the land, trying to lead a revival. But what we discover in this, and this passage before us this morning reveals to us that despite all that is going on under this good and godly young king, the hearts of the people as well as at least most of the leaders, they are still far from God. And, well, with that, let's just dig into the text. Jeremiah chapter 2, I'll read the first few verses. I follow along. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me into the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord the firstfruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. 
God says to the people, to the nation of Israel, He says, when I, when I think of you, nation of Israel, when I think of you, it's like a love story. And it's time to cue the song because it's, it's this, the music is going and it's remember. Remember the way we were. Some of you remember that song. Memories. Oh. And he takes a little trip down memory lane. And he says, remember back to young love. Remember when you were my blushing bride. When I, uh, when I brought you, out, you followed me out of Egypt. And you were, you loved me. You were devoted to me like a husband. You followed me into the wilderness, a land that wasn't sown. It was barren, the, the desert there. Says Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. This was to be the beginnings of the people of God who are going to love him and follow him. Says, there in the wilderness I provided for your every need. When someone came to, you were the the first fruit. When someone came to eat of you, to harass you, to attack you, I protected you. I cared for you. So don't you remember what that was like? It was like young love. Remember, God says, the way we were. But then we come to the crime. Actually, the great crime. And it is that God's people have rejected Him. We'll pick it up in verse 4 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What did your fathers find in me that they, that they went from me? They went after worthlessness and became worthless. They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought, brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us into the wilderness, a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. God says, people of Israel, Judah, He says, what, what happened? What happened? Why did your forefathers abandon me, turn away from me, forsake me? What wrong did they find in me that they did this? Why? question you almost always hear when a marriage falls apart. There's usually one person going, why? What happened? That's the anguish here that God pours out. He says, your ancestors left me. They went off chasing foreign gods. And he says, no one even asked. What happened to the Lord? (laughs) Suddenly he's gone. But nobody, he says, even notices. No one asked, where is the Lord who loved us, who brought us out of Egypt, who took us through the wilderness where there was no water and no food? It was a land of drought and deep darkness, a place where no one lives. But God brought us all through there safely and brought us to His land. So I did that for you and they turned from me and nobody even missed me. You can hear the heartbreak. Why? He goes on. Verse 7. I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. I brought you into this land to be our home. 
Remember what it was like to get your first home? I brought you here. This is where we were going we to enjoy this place together. Love one another and enjoy and live here. God says, but you defiled it. Says, Even the leaders, the ones who should have kept you along the right path, who should have led you to follow me, they led you astray. He goes on and says that in the next verse. Look at it. Verse, verse 8. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. He says the priests, the priests, their job is to, is to represent the people before God and represent God before the people. That was their job. He says, but even the priests did not know me. They did not seek me out themselves. How could they help lead the people to me when they don't seek me? The priests are supposed to be lifting the, the prayers of the people up before God and offering the sacrifices on behalf of the people. But he said the priests didn't say, where's the Lord? The priests didn't miss me. He says those who handle the law, the other Levites who, who were to know the law, they were the ones who were to teach the law to the people. God had planned it so that the Levites lived dispersed throughout the land of Israel. They're the ones who are supposed to be constantly telling the people, here's what God says, here's what God says. But he said, those who handled the law did not know me. The ones who should teach God's word didn't know it and didn't really care because they themselves forgot God. He says, the, the shepherds, the shepherds are the civil leaders, the kings, the governors, all the, the officials. They're the ones who are supposed to take God's law because God's law was supposed to be the law of the land there in Israel and Judah. And they're the ones who are supposed to enforce the law and to, to make sure that it was upheld and kept. He said they're the very ones who broke the law. They're the very ones who led the charge in throwing God's law aside. And then he says the prophets. The prophets were the ones who were, when everything else falls apart, the prophets, God raised up the prophets. They were the ones who were supposed to say, wait a minute, folks, you're, you're way off. Come back to the Lord. He says, the prophets didn't become my mouthpiece to the people. The prophets became mouthpieces for Baal, and the other idols, the other false gods. The very ones God had put in place to keep the people, oh yeah, Remembering, remember what God said. and Yeah, we need to follow God. They're the ones who led the charge away from God. Therefore, verse 9, God says, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. That word, I will contend, or that little phrase, literally translated from from Hebrew comes out something like, I will bring charges or I will state my case in court. In other words, God is saying, let's go to court. Come on, folks. Let's go into the courtroom and let's lay out the case here. And let's see what it is let's, that this crime is. Let's expose it. It's a great crime. God has said, why am I rejected? And now He says, verses 10 through 11, this is unprecedented. It's not only unprecedented, it's unheard of. Let's read. 
For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care, see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed the, their glory for that which does not profit. We'll unpack it a little bit and you'll see immediately what he's saying. He says, first, let's go west. His point is, take a map. On the map you go west, and when you go west, you go over to the island, you cross the sea and go to the island of Cyprus. And he says, go, go west to Cyprus. And then when you're done there, head east. Head east to go over into the Arabian desert where Kedar is. And there, he says, while you're all the way there and back and all the way there and back, do some investigating. Check everywhere. It's a euphemism for just go everywhere and check it out. And ask this question. Is there a nation out there that has changed their gods? Find the people out there who have changed their gods. And he adds a little thing, even though they aren't really gods. They're just idols. And then you send the investigators out and let's sit here and let's wait for the response. And the crickets start chirping. How many nations have done it? Crickets, crickets, crickets. Nobody does this. It's unheard of. And their gods aren't really gods. You have a relationship with the living God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. The people of Israel had heard His voice. They had seen His pillar of fire at night and His pillar of cloud in the day. They had seen miracles, miracle after miracle after miracle through the wilderness and into the land as they settled into the land. Continually, God provided miracle after miracle for His people. And he says, and yet my people have exchanged their glory. What is the glory of Israel? It's the fact that they have a relationship with the living God. How many times we think, if I would just hear God's voice audibly, if I would just see a visible, physical manifestation of God, I would never have trouble believing or following God with all my heart. You ever think that? Israel had it. Again and again and again. And we see them constantly do what he says right here. They go, yeah, that's pretty cool. And a short time later, they totally forget. And they're off chasing other gods. And God is going, oh, why? This is unheard of. And what you have here is you're hearing God with a broken heart saying, where are you, my people? He goes on, verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens. Be appalled at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. He says, folks, everyone should be shocked. To see this happen, this should, be, this should horrify everybody. My people, God says, those who belong to me, the people who wear the t-shirt that say, Yahweh's people, you know. The ones who got the bumper stickers on their carts, you know. 
We're God's people. These very ones have rejected Me. And not only have they rejected Me, the living water, they have replaced Me with cisterns. Helps us to get a little picture of what that is. A couple of years ago, you all graciously sent Janet and me to Israel to uh, see the Holy Land. What a blessing that was. One of the things in the Holy Land, most of you probably know, is that water there is a very precious commodity. And so whenever it rains, the people there learned centuries, millennia ago, I should say, they learned that you try to make everything you can of every drop of water that falls. And so what they did was they built cisterns. Cisterns are basically, they take a pit, they dig it into the ground, dig into the the limestone or the rock, and they dig a pit and maybe they build up a wall if they, they need to also, and then they plaster everything and so they make it watertight and then whenever it rains they take they capture the runoff from roofs and from various places and they, they send it through channels and it goes down and collects in the cisterns. We saw many ancient cisterns like this one. Here's one that's under the uh that's in Old Jerusalem, under Old Jerusalem, right next to the temple, if you ever go there and you take the tours through the tunnels, you go right through this old cistern. It's, you only see part of it here. It's bigger than this room. And it's all underground. It's all there to collect water because water is a precious commodity. But the way that water gets into these cisterns is it lands on a roof and then it runs down the roof and then it goes to a channel, goes down like a gutter and goes down the gutter and goes and down to another little thing, down to another little thing, working its way down until it gets underground and into the cistern. And you can just imagine all of us have roofs and gutters. You ever look in your gutters? I just cleaned one out last week. Well, water goes along and it goes down and it, every place it goes, it picks up a little bit of dirt maybe a few insects, and then it all goes down and ends up in this big you know, swimming pool-like thing down underground where you store your water. And then maybe after it all gets there, a few other things kind of make their way into the water that just happen to be crawling around underground. And it sits there stagnant for months until you need it. Yummy! Now, a cistern is a marvelous invention When you don't have any other source of water, you'll be really glad you have a cistern, won't you? But it's not surprising if that cistern ends up with some disease growing in that water. Certainly some awkward smells or funny tastes. That's a cistern. On the other hand, a fountainhead or a spring, it... It gushes out living water. That phrase when you see living water in Scripture, it means water that's moving because it's it's like it's alive. Living water is fresh. It's healthy. It's it's refreshing. It's cool. It's pure. It's clean. Stagnant water sitting in your cistern underground, not so much. You see, these people understood water. By the way, it's Blue Spring here in Missouri. People understood water very much and they, it would be unthinkable to take a spring that bubbles up thousands of gallons an hour of wonderful, clear, refreshing water and trade that in for a cistern. God says, it's God saying again, who does this? 
I am the living water. I am the living God who has created you, who has provided every good thing, who looks out for you, who protects you. And you guys have traded me in for a tree trunk, a piece of stone, a piece of metal that you call a God. And he says, it's worse than just you traded me in for a cistern. He says, you traded me in for a cistern that leaks. Because the cistern, if it leaks, it's no good. All the water goes in and it runs right out. And that's these gods over here. What can they do for you? They sit there. So God says everyone should be shocked. Everyone should be appalled that you, my people, have done this. Then He goes on to say, that's the great crime. Let's look at the consequences. What has this gotten you? Israel, my beloved people, my treasured bride, what has this gotten you? Verse 14, is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tophanes have shaved the crown of your head. Israel, what has this gotten you? God did not design you. He did not call Israel to be His people so that they could be slaves, they could be servants, they could be vassals of other countries. But He says, that's what happened, has happened to you all, hasn't it? He says, you become prey for other nations. The lions of the other nations have roared over you, claiming, you know, we are victorious. You have been victimized. O people of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel has been destroyed. The southern kingdom of Judah is living under constant threats. They themselves have suffered greatly at the hands of other peoples. He says, you've been suffering under the lions of these other nations. He talks there about Memphis, and he's not talking about Tennessee. He's talking about Memphis, which is a city in Egypt, and Tophanes, another city in Egypt. And he says that they've shaved the crown of your head. The point is this. They've come in and shaved your head. They've humiliated you. You, my people, who are designed to live as my people, people who are free, people who are under my protection, you've been humiliated by the nations around you. He says, you've brought this on yourself. Look at verse 17. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when He led you in the way? Verse 18, And now what do, you, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink of the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? God says, this is your own fault. You brought this on yourselves because rather than, go, than follow me, you've gone off on your own. You've gone your own way. You've left me. You've left my protection. You've brought this on yourself. And now let me ask you, God says, what are you going to gain by the strategies you're doing now? Historically, over the last couple of centuries, their strategies have failed and their strategies that they're going to embrace over the next 40 years are going to be disastrous. One of the consequences of their sin is failed strategies. What is their strategy, you might ask? Well, first of all, let's get, get their situation. 
The situation right now in Judah is this. Up to the north and to the east of Judah, there's the land of Assyria. Assyria had a worldwide empire, as it were, in the the Mediterranean world. They had the Assyrian Empire. That had come into play about a hundred plus years before this. And they dominated everything. They defeated everybody. And they destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And they were knocking on the door of Jerusalem about to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah when God miraculously delivered them. The Assyrians were absolutely brutal, cruel, malicious people. They were dangerous. It's now a hundred years later. Assyria is still the dominant world power. They are the, at that time the world superpower. But they are in decline. They've been in decline for a little while. But they're still not to be trifled with. That's up to the north and the east. Down to the south and the west, there's Egypt. Egypt has been a superpower. They were humbled by Assyria back a hundred years before. But Egypt is on the rise. They're coming up in the world. Not to any, not on anybody's radar, but it will be in about 15 years, is the land of Babylon off to the east. They're going to become the new world superpower, but they don't know that yet. They'll find out later. But Israel is sitting right here, Judah, right there in the middle between Assyria and Egypt, the two biggest powers in the world. And guess what you feel if you're them? Guess where all the highways are between Assyria and Egypt? Right through your land. Constantly on their minds is security, safety. The problem in Israel is that they are looking at the world through the eyes of the world. They look at the world through the eyes that most people today look at the world, through the eyes of CNN and Fox News and through all the political pundits and the military strategists. And we look at the world through the eyes of power and politics. And that's the way they're looking at the world. And so their, their strategy is if we have the, if we make shrewd enough moves, if we make the right alliances, if we handle ourselves politically astutely, we'll be okay. And God says, what do you gain by going to Egypt or by going to Assyria? What do you gain? The answer is nothing. You see, unfortunately, you're looking through the wrong lenses. Your problem is not a problem of military power. Your problem is not a problem of politics. Your problem is a spiritual problem. You will never be secure as a people when you've distanced yourself from me. Because the answer to all of your problems is a spiritual one. By the way, may I say that that is always true. We live in a world that looks through the wrong lenses always. Still a problem today. God says, turn back to me. Here you'll find security. He goes on, verse 19. If they keep going their way, 
their strategies are going to continue to fail. Verse 19, your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. He tells them a very valuable and important principle. One that is going to hold true for the nation of Judah and one that holds true for you and me today. God says, your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. What he's saying is, land of Judah, I don't have to lift my finger and discipline you. Your own behavior will bring it upon yourself. See, what the, the, con- the third consequence here of their behavior is the natural consequences of sin. Every sin has natural consequences that comes along with it. Whether you're talking pride or rebellion or whether you're talking anger or whether you're talking sexual immorality or drunkenness or greed, every sin has built-in costs that come with it. A lot of the sin at times we think we got away with it, but the, there's, there's always a bill that comes. And God says, I'm just going to let you guys suffer what's coming that you brought on yourself. You realize that, by the way, sometimes God protects us from the consequences of our sin by His grace. David wrote, he said, praise God, He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Sometimes God stops things that we would have suffered and He spares us. But that's not because we deserve that. It's because of His mercy. But God says here, I'm letting it happen, guys. You're going to get it all. What a scary thing. We don't have time to go through it, but in verses 20 through 24... God takes just a few moments to vividly describe, to vividly illustrate in some pictures, some word pictures, the sinful condition of the people of Judah. He says, for example, they are a wife who has become a prostitute. That's unthinkable. They are a choice vine that is beautiful and productive that has gone rogue and become a wild vine. They are a stain that won't wash out. They've got clothes. They've got them stained. They, they're using all the detergent and all the bleach and everything else, and they can't get the stain out. He says, your sinful condition is like a restless camel. It's like a, a wild donkey in heat. All of those there in verses 20 to 24. But we're moving on because I want to get to a fourth consequence of their sin. Look at verse 25. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. What he's saying with that is, hey guys, stop for a moment. The path you're on is headed for disaster. Keep your feet from going unshod, your shoes from wearing out and then getting torn up by this path because it's going to tear up your feet. You know, you're going to go down the, the feet with the, the path with rocks and thorns and sticks and, and, uh, and you don't want to go there and tear your feet up and you're going to be thirsty. It's going to wear you out. It's going to, Empty all your resources. You're going to be famished. And and uh, says, don't go down that path. God is saying there's a way out. Next thing he says. But you said, here's their response. It's hopeless. For I have loved foreigners and after them I will go. They spurn God's invitation and their 
excuse is, it's too late. It's hopeless. We've already gone down this path and we've gone too far down this path and it's hopeless and we, we fell in love with these other gods and you know what? We're just going to keep going. Sorry, Yahweh God, but it's just, it's hopeless. Have you ever been in such a place in life? Or maybe you know someone who has. They're so caught in sin, they say, you know what, I've gone so far, there is no hope left. Irredeemable. I've gone too far, I've done too much, I've done too many wrong things. There is no way back, there is no way. Just let me go. You know some people who've been there? Hopeless. May I say the Bible is so clear You can look and find example after example in the Bible. You can go through history and see in the history of the church where God again and again and again, in all of those cases, He has specialized in working with hopeless people. People who have gone too far. People who have done too much. And God has redeemed the irredeemable from our vantage point. And I could point to examples of some of you in this room whose stories I know. Where you say, you know what? I was so far gone. I was in the gutter so low. You know, you had to look up to look down, you know, kind of thing. And God saved me out of that. But Israel says, no. God is sticking, you know, one last life ring out here saying, come on. You know, one last rope, come on. They say, no, no. They refuse to listen to God. There is hope. There is a way out, but you have to turn to God. And if you won't do it, there is no hope. And so God replies, as a thief is shamed when he's caught, verse 26, as a thief is shamed when he's caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets. They're not going to listen. You're not going to listen. So here's what's going to happen. You're going to get caught. Like Like a thief. He goes on, verse 27. Those who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone you gave me birth, for they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities, so are your gods, O Judah. Shame is a consequence, but I put it in conjunction with this foolishness. I put it this way. Sin makes us stupid. Maybe you've been there. Some of us have. Or if not, you've probably been around where you have been or someone else has been caught in sin, they're just caught up in it, they're living this stupid sin, but you don't know it or they don't know it, whoever this person is, they don't recognize that it's stupid. Everybody around, the most pagan person around them can look at them and go, man, you're stupid. That's idiotic to be doing that. That's dangerous. That's foolish. Right? Right? When it's us doing it, we're going, 
<laughs> That's cool. And everybody else is going, you're nuts. God says the foolishness of your sin, Judah, is going to become embarrassingly clear. Just like a shoplifter getting publicly arrested there in front of people you know. You thought nobody was going to see, nobody was going to know. And now you are ashamed. You see, God says your sin, idolatry, is absolute insanity. He says idolatry is essentially going up to a tree and saying, Daddy. He's saying, if, if somebody takes a, a piece, a hunk of wood, a tree trunk, and they carve it into the shape of an idol, and now it's, oh, God. And God is like, they're nuts. And you take a rock, and they, you carve it into an idol, and you say, oh, creator of the universe. And he says, anybody on the outside looking at this is going, these people are daft. It's insane. And when the reality of your sin is exposed, you're going to be embarrassed going, oh, I can't believe we did that. And God says, and you yourselves know it. That's even the worst part. You know it. How do, how do we know that they knew it? Because God says, when the trouble comes, you, you're fine off there chasing your idols today, but tomorrow when the trouble comes, guess who you call? You don't call the idols. You call me, God says. Why? Well, because the idols can't do anything. <laughs> But for some reason, they don't see it until it's too late. God says, where are these gods that you serve? Let them help you. <laughs> hmm. Well, there it is, brothers and sisters, this great act of folly. Certainly a great, if not the greatest crime. Because the people who should know the best who God is. His own people. The people who have seen His power, who have seen His goodness, who understand His holiness. These people have rejected the living God to chase after a bunch of idols. Because probably with the idols, and they know they're not real, is because when they chase the idols, they can go do what they want. They can go party and carouse and do whatever it is they want and it's just the excuse. But they've turned their back on the living God. We look at that and we say, this probably is the greatest crime because the one who is offended is the one who is the greatest being, the greatest person in all the universe. The one who is hurt here is the one who is the most innocent in all of the universe. The one who is slandered and who is is trashed here, is the most righteous and the most holy being in the universe. And we could go on and on with how God is the most, the one who really all sin is against. 
And the ones who are doing the sinning are the ones who are the ones who have the least excuse. It's the greatest crime. Still, despite all of Judah's sin and their rejection of God, in the next chapter, chapter 3, God calls out to them with a marvelous invitation. He says, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. God says, simply recognize what you've done here. Confess it and come back. I'll forgive. I will restore you. These, by the way, are the, this is the whole message of Jeremiah. You're sinning and your sinning is heading you for disaster. You will be destroyed. But come back. Come back. Come back. I'll forgive you. They won't listen. It's easy to read this, this whole story, to hear this story, and to think, what a bunch of idiots these folks were. Man, really, really foolish people, stupid people. And then we all go home. We look at it as the people way back there, or we look at it as the people out there. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, says these things happened with them for our examples. They were written down for our learning. Because you see, it's a mirror. And when we pick up the mirror, what we see is, oh, we're God's people. We know who God is. We know that He is, he is the great Creator God. We know that He is holy. We know that He is righteous. We know that He is loving. We know that He is merciful. We know that God loved us so much He sent His one and only Son to come here to die on the cross to pay for our sin so that we, by trusting in Him, receive the gift of forgiveness of sins, eternal life. We know who God is. And yet how prone we are to turn away from the living water and start drinking out of cisterns. Maybe you don't, but brothers and sisters, I have found myself often going to the cisterns, drinking out of the cistern of pride. Pride meaning, you know, God, I know what you say here that I should be doing, but right now I have a better plan. It's kind of different than yours, but I think it's better for me. I get why it doesn't work for, you know, Walt over there. Walt needs to follow your plan, but I have a different. Have you ever had that conversation with God? You don't verbalize it. We just do it. <laughs> or we have drink from the cistern of success. We talked about that last week, chasing the wrong success. We drink from the cistern of materialism, how we fall in love with all the stuff. We, we love the gifts and we forget the giver of gifts. And we make the gifts the object instead of loving the giver and then enjoy whatever gifts we have. Or we drink from the cistern of pleasure, Whatever is fun, feels good, sensuality, 
We drink from the cistern of you can fill in the blank with whatever it is, anything that takes you away from your love for God or your desire to live for Him, to follow Him. Whatever that is, it's a cistern. And you're missing out on what brings the real joy and the real satisfaction, the real fulfillment, and what really matters for eternity. Let's pray. Father, this is a message for us. It hits us right where we're living. So easy for us to look at these folks and say, so glad we're not like that. And fail to see that in the mirror we are exactly at times like that. Thank You for Your grace. Your grace that does not always allow us to suffer the consequences we should. Your grace that does not always treat us as our sins deserve. For as Romans 1 says, it's, you, you seek often through your kindness, it's the kindness of the Lord that you desire to use to draw us to repentance. Father, you desired to bring the nation of Judah back to you and to spare them the judgment that was coming and that they wouldn't listen. Father, may, may we be wiser than that. May we listen to You as You speak here through Your Word. And may we not then go our own way and drink from the cisterns and miss the joy that You have for us. Miss the, the, um, the satisfaction and the fulfillment that You desire for us. When we look to You, we, make you our, we put our delight and our joy in You. We love You with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength as Jesus called us to do. There we discover the sweetness of living as Your people. The sweetness of living as Israel to be, your, was to be Your bride. The sweetness of walking with You. Lord, may we not just hear these words, but may we be doers of the Word. Put it into practice, even this day and this week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.